Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. And I want to take just a sec to thank all of you who have taken a minute to leave us a nice review and rating in Apple Podcasts. Whether it's for this Blister podcast, or our Bikes and Big Ideas show, or Off the Couch, or Gear 30, because a number of you have left some really encouraging feedback and responses, and I promise you that those comments are really energizing and invigorating, and they really do function as fuel to keep the episodes coming, and to stay up late to record these intros and outro which is exactly what I'm doing right now as it is well after midnight. So seriously, thanks to all of you who have left us your review or feedback. And I'd ask any of you who enjoy these conversations to please take 60 seconds and do the same. Thank you. You all really are the best. Okay, today on the show, we are talking to the skier and photographer and videographer, Adam Clark, about how he got started in photography which is just a phenomenal story. We talk about how he went about making a name for himself and getting good at his craft. I ask him, of course, about how he first got connected with Blister reviewer Paul Forward. And we talk about camera gear. And I ask him to name one of his most memorable ski trips. And we still manage to cover a whole lot more. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Adam Clark. And while you're listening to this episode, I highly recommend that you check out some of Adam's work and you can find it at adamclarkphoto.com or check him out on Instagram at AC Pictures. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, here's Adam Clark. Well, Adam, how are you today and where are you today? Well, Jonathan, I am, uh, I'm doing great. I skied this morning. I watched the sunrise from the top of Snowbird. Uh, it's surprisingly still great skiing in Utah. The uh, high north facing aspects are still holding a little powder. Utah is not known for its corn skiing, but we're actually getting a little bit of corn. So it's that great spring combination of Northern Pow and southern corn so i had a nice morning and now i'm sitting at home looking out the mountains from uh our new house in big cottonwood canyon and life sounds pretty good life is good yeah i couldn't ask for anything more right now all right so what time did the alarm go off this morning today was early today was uh anything that's before 5 a.m for me is early so i had a 4 30 wake up to get up there in time for a 6 58 sunrise Got it. So that was the objective. Get up top, be there in time for a 658 sunrise. Exactly. And uh, and it was great. It was a beautiful sunrise. There was no clouds. I love it when there's a little bit of mood for my sunrises and sunsets, but I'll take it. It was it was perfect. A little windy, actually 55 mile an hour gusts. But um, I got some beautiful like panoramic photos of Little Cottonwood Canyon at sunrise. And so that was kind of my next question. Like, were you going up there specifically to shoot photographs or video? Or was this just a, I just want to get a nice, fun, early morning ski in? Yeah. So this was specifically for 
photos and video. So it's something that I've been planning with Snowbird and with tourism for something like really specific, a very specific uh, photo and video that just shows, um, yeah, the canyon basically in Salt Lake City in the background. How did we do? Did you get what you were hoping for? I think I did. In my mind, I definitely nailed it. Um, but I, I kind of, I, I made a few runs and it was pretty good. So maybe I made a few extra and kind of rushed home in time for this conversation with you. So I haven't been able to review the shots yet, but in, in my mind, it was, it was amazing. But you, you never know. Sometimes when I think I really killed it is when I kind of didn't or I, I messed up. And then there's those times when I was like, ah, oh, it wasn't that good. And then I go through everything and there's those little nuggets, those little surprises that end up being some of the, my best work. And this still happens to you. Constantly. Constantly. Okay. Let's back up for a second then. So how long have you been in the, um, we'll call it photography and video game. I know the video stuff happened maybe a bit, a little bit later for you. And, and I want to talk about that, but how long have you been in the, the photography slash video game? Well, I started when between my junior and senior year in high school, uh, long story short, two dentists from Florida gave me a camera. I was on a, a trip to Alaska with my mom and it, there was a bunch of photographers. It was like this whale watching tour on a boat for 10 days, but it was catered for photographers. Even though my mom wasn't a photographer, she just wanted to go to Alaska. She wanted to see whales. And, but it, by the end of this trip, I was just enamored with photography because it was, I was kind of being surrounded by it and ingrained with it for those 10 days. And I guess I was like really excited about it because these, this really wonderful couple gave me a camera at the end of it. I think I just asked a million questions. And so that it's, and right after I got that camera, I was all in, I just started shooting everything. And my life, a lot of my life revolved around skiing because that's what I love more than anything. So I shot a lot of skiing. And within that first year, I got a photo published in Powder Magazine, uh, just like a quarter page shot, but that's kind of all it took. And so that's when I was 17 and last fall I turned 42. We got to go back to the, to the whale watching boat. <laughs> so, there was a couple. It was a couple? Yeah. And you were asking them a bunch of questions about their camera or just shooting in general? Shooting in general, photography in general. Like, how does this work? How do you get these photos? Where, where do you sell them? What do you do with them? Were they professional photographers or sort of amateur photographers? They knew their way around a camera, it sounds like? They were semi-professional. So they were... They were hobbyist wildlife photographers but they would sell some of their photos so they were that was like their thing was taking wildlife photography okay so this couple basically finds this energetic curious kid and is like you know what here you go kid here is a camera of your own this is a hell of a story i mean the ski world has benefited mightily from this nice couple 
right? I mean, you maybe would have got introduced to photography, you know, there may have been another way in for you, but like, it seems like a fairly seminal moment here. <laughs> Absolutely. I had no intentions of being a photographer before this. I have, and it is totally possible I would have gotten to photography in a different direction, but this is how it happened. And, you know, I've tried to actually find these dentists and I should try again, because I don't think they have any idea what this camera did to me and how it affected my life and, and where it took me. It's amazing. I love this. What a great story about like paying it forward. And just when you find, yeah, you find the right sort of curious younger person, go ahead and invest a little bit. Good things might happen for the world. So I don't know how many dentists listen to Blister Podcast, <laughs> but I'm really now hoping that at least, a, you know, one or two in Florida do, because that would be amazing if they like heard this and they were like, honey, you'll never, <laughs> you'll never guess. Uh, remember that kid? on the whale watching boat yeah 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 Yeah. i mean i I don't know there's a lot i i see a lot of dentists out there skiing in the world yeah well sure they're out there i just we've never done a sort of um a an analytical breakdown of blister podcast audience by career so um maybe we'll need to start that and just start this attempt to reunite you with those dentists from florida yeah that sounds great okay Okay. That's a great introduction to photography. And so then how old were you when you got your first photo in powder? Um, I was either 18 or 19. So it was right kind of like when I was graduating high school. And then did that just kind of seal the deal for you? You're like, that's it. I'm I'm now going to really try to go hard at the, the ski photography game. Pretty close to there. I mean, I, so what I did, I was working for the National Park Service in Moab with the uh, cryptobiotic soils. And I went to a semester of college in Missoula, Montana. And that was kind of my career path. That's what I thought I was gonna do. But I, halfway through my first semester at college, it started snowing in Montana. I went skiing, I was like, you know, I, I need to take some time off. I'm gonna give this photography thing a try. I quit after that first semester and got a job as a dishwasher at the Rustler Lodge at Alta. So I did a winter there and it was great. My roommate was one of my best friends who was also a talented photographer, Bridger Nielsen, and he had some photos published and stuff too. So we spent that winter skiing, taking photos, putting on slideshows, and that's when I really got hooked. and I started to get a few small photo jobs here and there. I went back to the Rustler Lodge the next winter. This time it was for nighttime laundry. <laughs> About three quarters of the way through the winter, I actually got fired, <laughs> which is pretty hard to do at the Rustler Lodge. But let's say I was having a really good winter. Okay. I was having okay. fun. And, but that getting fired was great. I, you know, I had to start acting like an adult because I didn't have a job anymore. And I was like, well, am I going to take this photography seriously or am I, am I just going to have fun with it? And uh, Connie Marshall at Alta, she was the, everybody knows Connie. Who's, Absolutely, we she's do. She's amazing. Um, she 
I showed her the photos that I had published. I sh showed her the photos I had of Alta and she gave me a season pass for the rest of the winter. And I just went up and I took photos every day. And so that's kind of like the moment I'd say when I got fired from the Rustler Lodge and started taking photos every day, that's when I really decided to try and be a ski photographer. And it also, I mean, being in Utah, Lee Cohen, Scott Markowitz, Chris Noble, like having those guys around to just even know that you could be a f outdoor photographer, much less a ski photographer. That was, that was a huge deal for me just to, just to have those people around. Lee was super nice. He always answered my questions. Um, and I think to have those kind of people made a big difference. That's gotta be a really interesting dynamic. You've got, I mean, everybody you just named some of the best in the business right and i i don't know how frequently they got like young bucks coming up to them and asking them questions about how to do this or that but on the one hand if those guys are like hey man it's a grind you know go grind like we've done for all these years and get good at your craft and but to hear that they sounded pretty willing to answer questions and the rest frankly if you said a different story where they're like they didn't really have time or they wouldn't really do that i, I would be like i kind of get that but it's also pretty cool to hear hear you say that they were open and kind of helped bring you up yeah they were open and and it also i was just around them too you know you just see it right like we'd go to the same place and i would i would literally see how they worked so i would watch what they would do um, and just being that around all of it and, and talking to the same athletes and that's, that really helped too. So if you can kind of remember back to that first season or two shooting, do you recall what parts of it felt easiest to you and what was the hardest part to learn or the hardest part to get good at? Yeah. So the, the easiest parts for me was that I was, I was loving being a ski bum. I truly loved it. And I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about anything else pretty much other than waking up, skiing and trying to get a good photo. Cloudy, sunny, powder, rain. I didn't care who I was skiing with. I just wanted to get out there every single day. And that part came super easy for me which now, you know, 20 whatever years later, I don't have that same motivation. Like if I started this 10 years ago, I would have had half the motivation to get out and ski and work that hard every single day, regardless of the money. I was there just for the experience. And that got me through, I think my learning curve really ramped up because of that. Cause I was just all in every day for you know, four winters, I think, before I was really starting to make an income and really starting to, what I would say, become a successful photographer. And I don't, you know, that would be harder to do later in life, I think, to take that time and not. But then that was the hardest part for me was figuring out the business side of it and figuring out how to make a real living at it. And how to cold call companies and go to the outdoor retailer show. And that part didn't come naturally at all for me. Got it. It's funny when I've asked that question, 
I was thinking about like some of the photographers we've worked with, with some of them, they weren't that comfortable on snow. And so, you know, if you're shooting a pretty tight line or you're got to kind of be billy goading around in a, a pretty techy, sketchy area for some folks like that there, you just took them right out of their comfort zone. They might be really good with a camera, but it's the actual skiing part that is the tricky part. You didn't mention that at all. So I take it the like going and getting into spots and getting into position that felt pretty comfortable from the like actual nuts and bolts of shooting. Absolutely. Getting in there and being a part of the action. That's a big reason why I love doing it and why I love shooting skiing. And it's still part of it for me is my favorite days now are a long ski tour with friends. And if there's a way for me to get great photos doing that, then that's, that's a huge win. But it was always, I was never a good enough skier to be a sponsored skier, but my friends were. So I could still like kind of be there and have that experience of like being really good, but not actually being that good. And that, that was kind of a big part of the drug for me was like, I was still in on the action, even though I wasn't the one jumping the big cliff or skiing the line perfectly. Like I didn't have to do that, but I could maybe ski down the line second and take my time or just kind of have that thrill without as much of the, I guess, oh, I could have that same thrill without as much of the consequence. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> thrill, thrill with a bit less consequence. Yeah. Sounds, sounds all right. Yeah. What about the shooting itself? I mean, we're, you know, working with cameras and, you know, I do want to talk a bit about gear, you know, camera gear with you in this conversation, but, you know, working with cameras 10, 20 years ago, what was the hardest part technically for you to dial? Yeah. I mean, so 10, 20 years ago, obviously we're shooting with film. So there's two things that come to mind. One, it was expensive and I was a ski bomb. So I was constantly trying to tip that scale of how many photos to take that I had a budget for. And so like when I would get a job where somebody didn't care how much I shot, that was all, that was like a big part of the dream. Like, okay, I can just like buy as much film as possible and go for it. So that was a, that was always a tough one for me. And then what, what started to happen is I got really dialed in shooting action. I knew how to shoot that and make it look good. But once I got outside of that, like shooting portraits or the lifestyle, I didn't have that same skill set. And that took a lot longer for me to learn because that is a, a it's two different worlds of shooting, I think. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more. Like, I think, you know, we talked about like on mountain shooting where a photographer, first of all, has to lug around the heaviest pack out of everybody in the group. So there's always that. Secondly, getting into position and sometimes into some fairly consequential spots or where there's a lot of exposure and you got that heavy pack. Then there's just getting lighting right and being able to direct skiers exactly where to go and, and articulate that. A lot of what we do at Blister, it's amazing how important the actual communication is. Right. When someone's like, go stand by that tree. It's like, dude, there's a thousand, there's literally a thousand trees. Right. 
And like, you know, it always drives me insane when we're like blowing shots because it was just a clear miscommunication. Like it just was a miscommunication. And you're like, that definitely didn't need to happen if we could all just be more precise in terms of how we're communicating. So there's a bunch of those variables in terms of the on mountain, on snow shooting. So when you say portraits is just a whole different beast, talk to us a little bit about that. If, if I, unless you want to add to what I, I'm no photographer, but if you want to add to what I was just talking about in some terms of some of the variables for the on mountain stuff, how would you help us understand like some, dude, I'm just sitting in a chair. How can a portrait be so hard? Right. What don't we know? Yeah. And that's, I guess, so I, I, for so many years, I relied on action and snow and to make my photos pop. Cause when you do see a beautiful day with great snow and good action, you just have to be in the right place at the right time. That's the goal, getting into the position and, and knowing what a skier is gonna do. So as a skier, I had that ability. Cause I'm like, okay, this is what's gonna happen. This is how it's gonna look. This is where I wanna be. But then take me out of that zone and you know, taking a portrait of you sitting in your chair, I just didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to make that look good. I had none of that skill set. But as I've progressed and worked over the years, every, and that's the thing I love about photography and about videography is every, around every corner is another challenge. Every time I get hired to do a different kind of shoot is this really cool challenge creatively of how am I going to tell this story of a person or of running or of a product and how to light it and how to convey that to somebody so that they think it's interesting. Again, I'm, I'm not a photographer. I'm definitely not a portraitist, if that's even a word. So my thought would be it's 90% lighting. True or false? I, I would say false. I would say uh, half of it's lighting and half of it's like getting to know somebody in a short amount of time or make them feel comfortable enough in a short amount of time to let them be themselves a little bit even if it's just for a few moments and you get that shot and you get that moment, you're like, oh, this is the person as they really are. And then you want the lighting to be good enough. If you can make the lighting amazing, then obviously you've just made it even better. But I think with portraits and showing somebody, you just, the most important part is getting them to show them themselves a little bit. Got it. So that's what you're going for first and foremost with a portrait shoot. For me, yeah, that's what I want to see out of a good portrait. There's obviously, there's, you could just have a person almost silhouetted with like really cool lighting and people would love it. But my favorite portraits uh, show the person and you get a little slice of who they really are. Okay, so we're talking about your early days shooting with film versus shooting say today and i take it you're not shooting with film often or at all is that true that's true i don't really shoot film anymore i, I have a few film cameras and i still like to pull out the polaroid every now and then but 98 percent of what i shoot is digital how do you think about that world of the gear then versus the gear now are, are you like i just love it it's really good there's such thing called a burst mode. 
you know, there, there's, there's stuff that makes the actual shooting easier now, or how would an actual professional photographer talk about this or help us think about and understand the differences in the, the gear changes when it comes to camera stuff? Yeah. I mean, the biggest difference between film days and especially now digital, you know, was really clunky to start with for so long. But the, the coolest thing is that there are so many options now and whatever you're into, you have access to a lot more gear that's a lot more affordable. The hardest part is navigating that ocean of camera gear that's available because before there weren't that many options and the options that were there were pretty expensive. So you just, you really had to pick your battles. Whereas now there's just so much cool stuff out there. A lot of it's really affordable. Obviously you can spend a ton of money too, just like anything, but that's what I think is really cool. So when I, I can always try something new out. And yeah, so there's just a lot more options now. We talk a lot about like ski quivers or bike quivers at Blister we spend a lot less time talking about like camera quivers. And again, we'll get to the video part of this, I guess in a sec, but given that you just said, you know, there's so many options, so many cool things and it's, it's, there's a good range of affordable stuff. I mean, how much gear are you working with? Are you constantly going and I'm going to grab this camera or I've got all these lenses and do you get real, particular about this stuff or is it more like the person who's like i only have one pair of skis or two pair of skis and i'm gonna go get the job done with a couple pieces of gear that i know in and out and i know how it works you know what i mean like so variety versus staples i guess is the question for you yeah it's a tough one for me because i especially now i shoot a lot of different things uh, you know I, in the winter I would totally revert back to being a skier and I shoot a ton of skiing, but the rest of the year I shoot a lot of commercial work. I shoot running, I shoot portraits, I shoot camping, I shoot video campaigns, photo campaigns. It's, it's really, I just shoot a lot. And so I have a serious problem with gear because all of it is a little bit different and each piece of gear has its pros and cons just like skis. And I definitely lust after all of it. So in my office, I have a ton of gear. Now in the winter time, it's basically one backpack, one camera and three lenses. And I'll, I'll, I'll use that 90% of the time. But then for the other 10%, I have three more different setups and a bunch of different lenses and a bunch of different other stuff that it doesn't get used as much, but it, each piece has its own little uh, niche and something I need. But I think I could condense it all into one backpack and do almost as good of a job, like very close. And all that extra gear just gives me that one little extra step up. But I love being able to do that. All right, so if we were going to hold you to this and you get to choose, say, one camera body, today, what would be 
your choice to go do everything you have to do? That's actually surprisingly an easy question today. And six months ago, that would have been hard for me. Um, and that's because Canon came out with this new mirrorless camera, the Canon R5. And before, even with digital SLRs, you were kind of choosing between photo and video. Whereas this camera finally brought the two together and shoots amazing photos and amazing video. And I've been using it all winter this year and I love it. It's just a great camera. It's been durable. The photos are amazing. The video is amazing. It's super small and light and I've kind of fallen in love with it. It's a great camera. And you know, Sony just came out with a really similar one that I think I haven't used it personally, but um, I've used a lot of Sony stuff in the past and I think it's great. I just happened to go with this Canon and it's just working for me. We were recently kind of going back and forth on this, on the whole, like, can we get, you know, a, a great camera both to go shoot stills on mountain and also get some on mountain video, but also to record sort of longer conversations, video to videotape longer conversations. And what our crew was kind of telling me is that digital SLRs currently aren't so good if you got to sit there and record an hour, hour and a half conversation. Is that still true or has your Canon solved this now? Yeah. So the Canon, it, in a way it has, um, if you shoot it in its highest res quality, it has some serious limitations. Okay. Time-wise you mean? Time-wise. Absolutely. Um, but what you can do is do a more compressed file and not as good of a quality file. And then you can, you can absolutely get those longer conversations. Okay. Yeah. Which would probably be good for me because I don't think I look great in high resolution anyway. <laughs> so if we kind of knocked that down a bit, it'd probably probably work better for me actually. Yeah, like I'm thinking like a like a 240, probably 240, not 1080. I think 240 is probably my best look. Yeah, there you go. Well, you can just add, uh, you know, some grain to it, give it a little <laughs> retro feel, make it a little out of focus. It'll be great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's go back and talk about just ski photography in general then. And now we're going to need you to put on your honest hat. Ooh. Yeah. So you've seen a metric ton of ski photographs across your career. And I guess when you're looking at ski photography today, to what extent do you sort of see stuff and you just automatically feel like, yeah, I've seen that photo before? Like, how often are you surprised or how often are you like, wow, that's cool. What a cool shot. So that's a tough question because we are, as we all know, inundated with photography as long, assuming you're on social media. Um, I definitely respect the people that have chosen to cut social media out of their life, but I don't know many of them personally. So it, for me, part of the, it's, there's two answers to your question. One is it depends on the mood I'm in. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> it depends on how receptive I am to looking at something. 
I think it's the same when you are maybe at a party with a lot of people and are you going to take the time to meet somebody and talk to them and get to know them? And I think it's the same way with the photo. Are you going to take the time to look at this photo and think about the story and think about the what the person did to get there and what the skier did to ski that? If I'm willing to take that time and really look at photos, I'm surprised a lot more. I'm, I'm excited a lot more about those photos. But if I am in the, the scroll of Instagram, then a lot more just passes by me and it takes a lot more for me to be like, wow, whoa, wait a second, what was that? Because um, I think there's just, there's a ton of great photography out there. There's so much more being captured and if I'm open to it, I could find a lot of really cool photography. But most of the time I'm busy, just like everybody. I'll get on and scroll for a little bit. I'll open a magazine and breeze through it. And then it's pretty rare that a photo really captures my eye and gets me. That checks out. I, I guess related question. I mean, you're a skier, you know, like kind of first and foremost, you're a skier. So how often when you look at a photo, are you like, wow, that athlete is doing something super cool right there versus eh, that seems a little overexposed or underexposed or does it depend on the mood or? <laughs> I mean, there's still like, I'm trying to think of what I've seen recently. You know, I think video is what when I'm when I'm looking at content and I see a video of an athlete doing something really cool, that's what usually pops out to me as like for that athleticism. You know, you see Candide do one of those crazy jumps or like a POV I saw of Casey Dean this morning. I was like, oh my God, that was insane. For photography, it's usually when the, the stuff that impresses me is when I see something that's like really well thought out and really like the composition, you know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of like some of the stuff that Noah Wetzel has done over the last few years with where you can tell he, he had this idea and it was executed and it took a lot of time and effort. And I just immediately know that when I look at the photo. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. So if it's a still, you almost instinctively go to composition. If it's a video, you're just kind of locked in on what this athlete is about to do. Totally. Yeah. And I, I don't know why that is for me, but that's that's how it, it usually gets compartmentalized in my in my brain. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Story time. Tell me a story about a particularly memorable shoot you were on or a favorite shoot you were on? Well, when I first started, like committed to photography, I wanted to just do the coolest thing I could possibly think of. So I called uh, Steve Winter at Matchstick Productions and Todd Jones at Teton Gravity Research and Dave Reddick at Powder Magazine and everybody got back to me. And I don't think that would happen as much anymore. And I think part of that is because there's just a lot more people doing it. And I think my enthusiasm, probably the same way my enthusiasm to the dentist in Florida came through. I just, 
I wanted it. I wanted a piece of the action. And somehow I got to go on a, a heli trip to Bella Coola, British Columbia with Matchstick Productions. And I thought this was going to be like the coolest thing ever. And it was in a lot of ways. But <laughs> I went up there for two weeks and it snowed for 13 out of the 14 days. And I paid for it all with some credit cards. And I think somebody, I don't know who, gave me like a little bit of money, but not nearly enough. But that one day we went out there, we shot, it totally blew my mind. It was with Seth Morrison, Brad Holmes, and Wendy Fisher. And uh, we were flying around in helicopters like, this is my, my dream come true. Um, and I got like three good photos. And I came home and I was, but I, I had this peak moment, but then I came home and I was like, what the hell was I doing? That, I don't have that much money. Uh, I spent most of the days drinking cheap beer, which is actually expensive in Canada. And I got three good photos. <laughs> and it wasn't until the next fall that I, I sold those three photos many times over. And I learned a ton from that trip that I realized that that's kind of what ski photography is. That was kind of like the most extreme part of it where you go out and you work super hard, you put in tons of time and effort and you come back with just a couple golden nuggets. And so that trip, I think I was lucky that in some ways it didn't work out that well. It was super hard, challenging, but what I did come out of it was a great experience in those few great photos that really lasted the test of time. And I got to ski with Seth Morrison. So yeah, there's that. In my mind, I was like, I could just quit. You know, I was so enamored with those kind of people at that time that that's all I wanted to do. One of the coolest things about my life now is I see Wendy all the time. Like she's walking out of Elevation Hotel as I'm like walking into our headquarters and stuff. And so I just get to see her like on a, every like random Tuesday or whatever. It's like, <laughs> hey, Jonathan. Hey, Wendy, what's up? And we hang out and I'm like, it's pretty great. And of course, Seth is lurking around these parts too. But right. so far we just kind of, you know kind of just let Seth be Seth, leave, leave Seth alone. But <laughs> it's always just so fun for me to bump into Wendy all the time, like randomly. So, but it was interesting to hear you talk about like this maybe was a good experience in terms of um, showing you what your career was going to look like. And I mean, that sounds kind of stressful. It's like there's a big upfront investment time, energy, financial investment, and you have to just have enough confidence or stupidity or something or faith to say, yeah, I'm going to push in up front because I have enough faith and self-belief that I'm going to be able to get something good from this that will return later. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it, it took so much effort and time, but and it still does. And I think that's, that's one of the cool things that ski photography did for me was it's really hard work. It's has all of these crazy variables to it 
you're working with people, this fickle thing that falls out of the sky, um, your you know, personal energy levels, athletes, there's just a lot of factors that can go into getting a great photo. And so when I step into something like shooting trail running or um, a camping scene at sunset in a beautiful place, I don't wanna say it's easy comparatively, but it has a lot less factors usually going on. And I think skiing, shooting skiing just kind of like, it throws it all at you. But then when it works, a lot of the magic is done for you because I think that's why we all love skiing. It's like, it is just crazy when you're out there on a perfect bluebird powder day and the snow's flying up in the air and there's crystals everywhere. And you're like, what is this? And so for all the hard work it takes, I think you're rewarded with like mother nature just doing its magic trick. That's really well put. That's really well put. And I wanted to ask you that question in this conversation, like shooting skiing versus shooting mountain biking versus shooting trail running, say, if we just, and we could throw climbing in there as well. So we take those four. I think you just spoke to that, but in, in terms of climbing, mountain biking, and trail running, it's like, well, you've got the rock wall in climbing, and then you got the trail in mountain biking or, or trail running. So basically just get the lighting right. Like if you're shooting in a period of good light in the day, things are probably going to go well. Um, but to translate that over to skiing, if that snow is garbage snow or the clouds are just in and out all the time, sounds like, yeah. So correct me where you would disagree or something I've missed, but just as you've said, fewer variables in the other and, and you can, it's maybe easier to pull off a pretty nice looking photo in some of those other arenas, but those other arenas might not have that magic that you're talking about when it all comes together. Yeah, and I think everything has its challenges, but shooting outside, shooting outside no matter what you're shooting is can be hard because weather does what it wants to. And but I think like in a broad scope, skiing is one of the more difficult things for me personally that I've shot. And that's because, you know, you, a lot of times you only get to do it once. There's a track in it. It's if you mess up, they don't get to do it again. When you're shooting trail running, you most likely can shoot it again and again until you get it right. Where with skiing, a lot of the times, it's you just get one shot. You get one chance at it. They're just going to ski that line one time. You're, you know, you're not going to climb to the top of a huge mountain twice, probably, or the snow goes bad or yeah, there's just a lot of variables, and but that's what makes it fun too. That's why I still, I think, go back to it. And maybe that's why we all still keep skiing because when you do get it good, it's so mm. good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. You've already said in this conversation that one of your favorite things to do is kind of, you know, go out and get to shoot on like a longer day in the mountains and a longer tour in the mountains. You know, it's something that we've been talking about maybe more than normal in the past year or two, but just traveling in the mountains and doing that safely 
Um, and you know, this past season has, we've been dealing with a pretty sketchy snowpack through a lot of portions of the United States. So, <laughs> and I confess like often when we're moving in the mountains, I'm not really thinking like, how's our photographer doing? Um, you know, cause I'm a jerk apparently, but, um, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that sort of shooting and moving in the mountains and doing all of the above safely. Yeah. And that's a really important question to me because over the years I've had a lot of changes in how I act in the mountains and how I look at the mountains. And I've always, you know, thought I had a healthy respect for the mountains. But when I look back on my earlier career, I don't think it was a healthy respect. I think that I was really just going for it. And I was just looking for that great photo and that great peak experience. And who doesn't want to have that peak experience of like being on a mountaintop and dropping into a sweet line and all your buddies are there. And like, that's just the coolest thing ever. And Luckily for me personally, all of my close calls have come out really well and I'm totally fine, but I've had enough close calls of personally being in avalanches or a person that I'm shooting being in avalanche and realizing that trying to get a great photo, just like trying to get onto a great line, you can get caught up in it and easily tell yourself that you're doing something safe and that it's worth the risk or that you convince yourself to do that. And the problem is with shooting and trying to get a great photo is that it just adds on to that trap. You already have the trap of wanting to have a great day. We all, every skier has that. But when you add on getting a great photo, I think it just elevates that even more. And I think that it's really important anytime that you're with a group of people or taking photos to at some point have that conversation of what's our goal today? What challenges do we have today? What's, what could kill us today? And to just have that conversation every day is super important because I've had so many days where I didn't have that conversation and then something really bad happened. So it's just, you know, it's like, I think it's, shooting is just like skiing and people aren't usually aware of it and sometimes it can come from a hobbyist point where you just want to get a cool photo of your friend and you're just going to like maybe stop in a place you wouldn't usually stop or to a professional where you want to get the coolest line on the mountain and you're willing to do it right after the storm because that's when it looks the best. And there's a lot of different levels of that. And it's really important to be aware that the smallest level of it can still have a huge impact. One of the things that we have been talking about more and more, and not just us, I think everyone involved in like the snow safety world for sure, is just right, communicate, communicate, communicate. With your group, everybody needs to be willing to speak up. If something feels wrong, don't bury that you gotta articulate this stuff to the group so i'm curious in your experience how often are you out and you're like man that looks sweet over there and there's an 
athlete you're filming who's like, yeah, I don't feel, I don't know if I feel good about going over there right now in at this time of day or on that line or on that aspect or in these conditions or whatever, versus how often is the athlete like, man, it would look sick over there. And you're the one who's like, I don't know. And, and I don't know how often you're out with guides, but, and then there's also like, in a lot of time you're out shooting for a client. So there's maybe not that, not that the client is necessarily standing there next to you, but if there's like somebody's out here expecting you to go get the goods. So that's four potential variables I just named. One is your comfort level. Another is the athletes. There's potentially a guide or a heli operator, or there's just the client you're out there working for. So talk to us a little bit from your point of view and given your job, how do those variables tend to go together or get worked out? Yeah, and it's interesting because group dynamics are a huge part of skiing. And kind of like what I was talking about before, when you add photography or video, it just adds more to it. But I found that a lot of the time when you're adding production to a ski day, there's more conversation. People are more open. And they because so many bad experiences have happened during production, I think, and you're talking about everything anyways, you kind of have to talk more for production. Whereas with skiing, you might just show up at the trailhead, meet some new people, and just start hiking up, right? Where with production, there's usually a baseline level of communication. For sure, when I first started out, I wouldn't ask people if they're comfortable. I would just put out suggestions. I'd be like, oh, that, just like you said, that would look cool if you skied there. And they'd either say yes or no. Now I communicate way more. I'm like, how do you feel about this? What do you think about, did you read the Avery report this morning? There's way more communication now than I used to have. And that goes a long ways. I think it shouldn't matter whether that's in production or just skiing with your friends. It's just so important, like you said, to have, to just talk and ask everybody what they think. Because it's, there's usually somebody in the group that's quiet, that doesn't say much, almost always. And it's really important to ask those people what they think too. But it isn't as a generalization. You're sort of reining in the athletes or the athletes are kind of reining in you. It's not quite that clear cut where it's like, oh yeah, those athletes are always like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And you're like, I'm not sure. It, it, it doesn't work out quite that um, patterned. Right. Yeah. No, I get you. It, no, it, Definitely the first half of my career, I was chasing that action way more. So I was all about, if somebody wanted to jump off a 70 foot cliff, I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. Now, if somebody wants to jump off a 70 foot cliff, I don't necessarily want to be there for that. It's not worth it for me. I don't want to, I don't want anybody to get hurt. Uh, The risk for me isn't worth the reward. And so when I work with younger people, sometimes I might say that I'm not interested in shooting that. Let's just go ski something else or shoot something else. And 99% of the time, that's totally fine. Um, and that's probably just because I'm getting older and like a that action shot isn't what I'm searching for personally anymore. I, I'm more of like, I want to tell a story. I want to 
show a beautiful place. I want to show the the grace and the beauty of skiing, not so much the action of skiing. Random question, but I've waited this long to ask it. When did you first get connected with Paul Forward? Like, how do you how do you know Paul? Like, originally? Yeah. So I know Paul because I, I've been going to Alaska since I started shooting. It's always been this beacon for me, and I, I should count it up, but I bet I've done 50, 60 trips to Alaska over the years. I spent a ton of time in Haines, Alaska, and some trips to Denali, Valdez, some other random places. But throughout all of that, I've done trips to Girdwood, and Paul's always been a guide in Girdwood. So we met a long time ago just as two people in Girdwood. But then the more work I did with Chugach Powder Guides, the more I started skiing with Paul. And Paul's great because, you would, I mean, <laughs> he's a doctor, he's a hunter, he's a dad, he's an amazing skier. He's just one of those guys where once you do take the time and talk to him about his life, you're like, holy shit, man, what have you not done? And what do yeah. you not know? Like. If you want to feel bad about accomplishments in your life, just yeah. ask Paul what he's done because he's done it all. Um, so yeah, Paul's been, I've, I mean, I've had some of my best ski days of my life with Paul in Girdwood. Wow. That's, that's really cool. And I've got some great photos of him and I, I think he's even used a few of them for Blister. That's true. Yeah. Probably, probably some of the best photographs that have ever shown up on, uh, shown up on blister are our thanks to you thanks to you and paul so yeah and actually this march i went to girdwood uh let's see eight days i had eight days eight ski days and it, would, it was planned this summer last summer so it was kind of these are this these are the dates this is when i'm coming up maybe we'll just uh not do anything for those eight days or maybe it'll be good got lucky skied seven out of the eight days with Chugach Powder Guide, so it was all heli skiing. And we, I don't know, we must have done a hundred runs. And it was, it was amazing. It was, it was one of the best heli trips, Alaska trips I've had in a long time. And this year has been really good for Alaska. It's still good up there right now as we're talking. Um, but Paul was with us most of those days as a guide and he's he was great and again i got some great photos of him so you might be seeing some more paul forward alaska chugach powder guide shots here any day all right i have to ask what was your ski were you on one ski for this last trip yeah so um i have a soft spot for the k2 powabunga okay so this is a story in and of itself that paul put me on to this is like the secret sleeper favorite ski of a bunch of guides up in ak and apparently because you've had 50 to 60 trips there whereas i have zero trips just for the record <laughs> this, is, this is something that needs to change yeah. but that powabunga is like a, a secret favorite yeah there's something about it it's got a special, I mean, for me, I love it. Cause, and I'm sure the same for some guides. You, you kind of have a heavier pack on. 
a big heli day. I don't know how much vert there is, but it's a lot. You're going to ski a lot of vert. And it's that combination of really playful, but it'll still just kind of support whatever you're, you want to do on skis. Um, to a certain extent, it'll, it'll squirt you right into the back seat also. If you start going too fast or you start getting a, a little wild and crazy. And if you hit any kind of firm snow, it's horrible. It's the worst, it's the worst ski you ever want to be on. But the second you get into something that's soft and playful and you have a heavy pack on and you just want to crush 3000 vert, it's a great ski and it's, and it makes it fun and playful. So I was supposed to get my first trip to Girdwood. It was on the books. It was all scheduled. It was, um, it was like 13 months ago, basically. And I was so excited because for years, Paul, it's like we've skied together in New Zealand and Argentina, but had never connected in Alaska. And so after all these years, the AK trip was finally happening. And then COVID showed up and canceled a bunch of spring trips. So that Girdwood trip still needs to happen. And now, now I think maybe what we need to try to do is like, I need to get out there, but maybe we coordinate this and get you out there as well. And then Paul won't be the only one that would have good looking photos. There you go. Right? Yep. Because I figure, you know, any good looking shot of Paul, it's probably all you, right? <laughs> I mean, like, it's just you making Paul look good. So I figure that would probably work for me too. I bet we could figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to think about this. I like this. I like this. I think, uh, uh, I, you know, I, when I showed up, I'm talking to Paul. He had a day off. And I see him the next day and I'm like, well, how was your day? And he's like, dude, I had the best day of the season. I'm like, well, what did you do? And he was out solo on Turnigan Pass ski touring and did like seven laps by himself and was showing me photos of skiing these beautiful spines on Turnigan Pass. So maybe what we could do is a, a combination, like a trifecta of uh, heli skiing, uh, resort skiing at Alyeska and then ski touring because that's something really special about Girdwood is you have all these cool options and all the options are like A plus so it's just a really fun place to be kind of no matter what I like this I like this very much I think we're on to something good here <laughs> okay we have some things to start uh, working toward for for next season I said a long time ago that I wanted to talk to you a bit about video before I let you get going, I think we should do that. And these days, I don't really know how many quote unquote professional photographers are like, oh, no, no, I only shoot stills. It kind of now feels like it's just part of the game. You kind of need to be able to do both. Is, is that true? Would you say? Do you know any or many people who are like, I don't do any video. I only do stills. Yeah, there's definitely photographers out there that just shoot photos and they're always going to be intertwined with some kind of production that's inevitable. I'm sure every one of them has a client that asks them for video. But absolutely, you can make a living, a great living as a photographer, just taking photos. Only stills. Okay. Totally. It's just, it's becoming more and more rare because as everybody knows, video is a part of our ecosystem now. It's just a part of content. Everybody has it. But personally, I love video. Say more about this because it, it feels 
first of all, I think one of the interesting things about being alive is like the world is always going to evolve every day where you continue to be alive. Something new is changing or developing. But, you know, for you getting into a world where basically it was stills and stills only and then being told, hey, uh, why don't you learn this whole other medium? And it's like, dude, that's a little bit like being like, hey, you're really good at baseball. Now be really good at basketball as well. So talk to me a little bit about this. I mean, you say you love video, but was that passion for video already there? And so it made it, you know, because you had that hunger or that desire, was it actually a fairly easy transition into the video stuff or talk to me a bit about how that went for you? Yeah. I mean, I, if you'd asked me this even seven years ago, my answer would have been, yeah, no video. I love photography so much. And it's such a big world of photography that I, I won't ever need video. And I couldn't tell you what exactly happened or the moment it happened, but it went from not caring about video to it's just, I love it so much now. It's a way to tell a great story. It's something that when I come back and show my mom or dad a cool video, there's a different kind of reaction that people have. It's just, there's something about it. And then on a more, I don't know, boring side of it, it's a big push for me personally was I wanted to travel less. I wanted to spend more time at home and financially getting into video open more doors. So maybe a client doesn't need many photos, but they need a bunch of video. And that was a big, push for me to shoot more video and, and teach myself and learn so that I could offer people more. But then it's turned into a bit of an obsession. So now I still am totally obsessed with photography, but now I'm also obsessed with video and I'm just, I'm just kind of in the middle of it now. Um, and we'll see how long that lasts for. <laughs> And say more about the obsession. Like, what about it are you obsessed with? Yeah, I think part of my obsession now is that it's new and different still. And so every time I work on a job, my learning curve is still like really going up. And where with photography, every job or every time I shoot, I still learn something. It's still like I can still find a little something, something about it. But with video, it's like, whoa. I can do this, I can try that. It's just, it's still new enough, even though I've been doing it for, I mean, the first few years was pretty hobby, but 10 years of pressing the video on my camera, it's still really new because there's this component of a group effort. And, you know, like working with other people and editors and creatives to find the story make something special and come out with this final product. And I love that. I love working with other people. And I think for a lot of the time, it was just me out there taking photos. And now it's me working with uh, usually a bigger group of people. And I, I really like that part of it too. So when you're shooting video, are you typically working with other folks who are going to handle like all of the editing or or a decent amount of it and doing sort of the storyboarding, like talk to me a little bit about what that is like for you, or does it just vary from job to job? 
Yeah, and that's part of why I love it so much is some jobs, it's still all me. I go out there with my camera. I work on getting great shots. I come home and I edit it and do it all myself to deliver to somebody. But then I'll have jobs where I get to hire everybody. I get to hire other filmers and editors and producers and writers and bring it all together and kind of produce really cool stuff and kind of everything in between. And so that's part of why it's fun, I think, is it just it opens a lot of different doors for me and I get to meet a lot of different people. All right, couple questions. What is the place in the world you have not skied but would most like to ski? And then second question, what place have you never shot photos or video but would most like to, if those are two different answers? Yeah, I mean, there's a few answers to the, that question too. The, the easiest answer is I'm, I'm six out of seven for the continents. Uh-huh. I need Africa. So Morocco's super high on the list, the Atlas Mountains. And that's just a personal thing. I, I think at this point, whether I, you know, went there to take photos is kind of irrelevant. Obviously I would, but I just want to go there to ski. And I've never been a list person, but that list happened and why not? I, I feel like that needs to happen in my life. I've had a few great opportunities, but it's just never come together. So yeah, Morocco desert, Africa, and then where I really want to shoot, man, that's, I don't know, the next great powder day. <laughs> Any, in your backyard, just anywhere, anywhere, just a good powder, yeah. I mean, I still like just lost after that great adventure. You know, I love a good road trip. Like I did six weeks driving around in New Zealand with a friend, I did, a month and a half from Santiago to Punta Arenas in a van. I love the, those kind of adventures. I don't know how many of those really long adventures I'll, I'll do again, but I would love to have a few more of those um, where you just really get ingrained in the mountains where you're in them every day for a long time. I just, I love those experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to go I'd love to spend more time in Japan, who, but who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, I've started really digging the Nevada mountains. There's like, there's tons of these crazy little mountain ranges and you're looking out on desert and skiing through 2000 year old bristlecone pines. I, that's kind of a new favorite spot for me. So I wanna do some more of that, man. That's, I think that's one of the great parts of being a skier is it's never gonna end. There's always some someplace really cool to go to, whether it's a few hours away or across the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's real cool to return. So like, it's fun to ski the same line for the thousandth time. <laughs> and it's fun to go do the new thing. Like it's all, it's all pretty great. Yeah, it's all pretty great. And I mean, I. I've always lived in Salt Lake and the Wasatch Mountains aren't that big. It's a small mountain range compared to so many 
And I am still so psyched to ski in Utah and ski in the Wasatch. And there's, I still have a list of stuff to ski here. So pretty good. All right, before I let you go, it's always just fun for me to ask people what they're kind of watching or listening to or paying attention to. And, you know, given that you have talked about, like you're pretty obsessed with video right now, if there are any particular filmmakers or directors or just things you've been watching recently where you're like, that's amazing what they're doing there or, huh, I wonder how they pulled that off. But I guess the question is about somewhat a question of influences, but maybe it's not even a direct influence. It's just what are you paying attention to that's kind of really grabbing your your interest? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I'm still such a skier at heart. Like I love seeing where other filmmakers, other ski filmmakers have gone. So somebody like Stepped Productions was like a group of friends in Boulder, Colorado that were making park videos. And all of a sudden they grew up and they're doing commercials for Geico. And, you know, their work is amazing and and so cool to watch. And to see their evolution from shooting park skiing to that is, I love it. Not that I'm going to be shooting Geico commercials, but <laughs> it's really cool. I love, and then, you know, like Bjarne, the guy that's shooting all of Cody Townsend's 50 classics, you know, like, I just feel like he's such a skier and a mountaineer into those are two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Where he's just staying in this very core part of filmmaking. I love watching that too. Um, so I, I like to soak it all up and I definitely ingest my fair share of media to keep inspired and you know, maybe I don't travel as much anymore. So I like now being on the other side of that where I'm I'm having the experiences of traveling the world through other people. So I, I, I totally love that. So what you are paying more attention to, though, is a bit more sort of within our kind of broad industry or space like I'm always a little bit curious if um, if people are like, man, I'm going out and watching or rewatching Tarantino films, like just something like yeah. <laughs> wildly not related to kind of the outdoor industry in the interest of like, I'm sitting here watching Kill Bill Part 2 for the seventh time and there's a scene or a shot or a camera angle and it just pops a new sort of idea you know what i mean like inspiration can come from a lot of places and so i'm just always curious about that one with working professionals like yourself how far afield does one travel to either directly or indirectly find that fresh idea or thought absolutely i mean that inspiration can come from so many different places and I'm sure that one of the reasons why I've gotten so into video and creating that is I, I love watching movies. I love watching a good commercial. Um, I wish I could tell you like a specific director that I was in love with or something, but at the end of the day, 
you know, I just, I love watching mm -hmm. stuff. Soak it all up. Yeah. 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 Well, hey man, this has been really fun. It's great to connect. We have enjoyed some of your photographs on Blister. So thank you for that. More importantly, thank you for making Paul Forward look good on snow. I mean, seriously, <laughs> if, if you need to know just how talented Adam is, he even makes Paul Forward look pretty good. Right on. Well, yeah, I appreciate the talk and, and connecting, and I hope you get a few more good spring days in Colorado. Mm, yeah, I mean, we're so psyched right now. We're just in that kind of perfect position of like Hartman Rocks down in Gunnison just opened up, so we're going to be mountain biking this weekend, and snow is starting to lock up and get into some, you know, stability is getting pretty good around here so i this time of year when it's sort of mountain bike and ski tour sometimes in the same day it's kind of a kind of a happy spot for me so yeah good time of year and, and here's hoping you uh you keep getting some good turns in and catching some nice sunrises and and the like right on yeah thanks i'm i'm looking forward to a few more i think the warren miller that coined it like skiing is a spring sport <laughs> I don't know, but it is for me. I I mean, it's like two different seasons, yeah. winter and spring, and they're both, I love them both so yep. much. So let's have a good spring. Amen. Hey man, appreciate the time. Thanks for, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Keep in touch. All right, take care. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast and leave us that nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Adam for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.